and welcome back to episode three of the Inspired Podcast. Um, as usual, I am your host, Dr. Corey Still, and y'all, today I am really excited to be joined by um, one of our American Indian Graduate Center alumnus, Bob Miller. Um, you know, Bob, he's done a lot of great things across Indian country, um, and to be able to share space with us today and to be able to discuss uh, what it means to start building prosperity across Indian country. So Bob is an enrolled member of the Eastern Shawnee Tribe of Oklahoma. He's a professor at the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law at Arizona State University and serves as the interim chief justice for the Pasquay Yaki Tribal Court of Appeals and the appellate judge for the Court of Appeals of the Shawnee Tribe, the Grand Road Tribe and Northwest Intertribal Court Systems. In 2012, Bob was elected to the American Law Institute, and then in 2014, elected to the prestigious American Philosophical Society. His scholarly work includes articles, books, and book chapters on a wide array of federal Indian law issues and civil procedures. Bob also speaks regularly on Indian law issues across the United States. So Bob, thank you so much for being with us here today. Welcome to the show. Um, we appreciate you being here, and I just want to go ahead and just jump right in. I want to be able just just to ask you, you know, I, I know we gave the bio already, but um, would you just tell us about yourself and about your background? Sure. Thank you very much for having me on the show. I've obviously the American Indian Graduate Center helped me go through law school, and so I've always been both a fan and and very appreciative of the assistance that the AIGC gave me. Uh, I'm a native of Portland, Oregon. My mom and my our tribe, of course, is from Oklahoma, but my mom moved out here in World War II to work in the shipyards, and this is where she met my father. So I was born and raised in Portland, Oregon. Ended up going to Lewis and Clark Law School, graduated in 91. And I practiced law for a while. I clerked for a federal judge at first, and then I transferred to Arizona State University Law School in 2013. So this is the start of my ninth year teaching at Arizona State. And I'm very happy to be there because of the extensive Indian law program. We have more than 35 tribally enrolled students in the school. Arizona State itself has two to 3,000 native students. So I'm delighted to really be able to work in a program, the Indian Legal Program at ASU. Um, I worked for my dad in the car business for 19 years before I went to college. So I was definitely older when I graduated. But that background, my dad owned his own business for 52 years and I worked for him for 19 years. He was a very successful business person. He started with my mother's assistance. She helped him the first eight years or so. So this was really a family business. So when I was hired full-time as a law professor in 1999, Corey, the first thing I wanted to write about was tribal economic development. And so obviously we're gonna talk about that today, but that's what brought me to that world. Uh, my dad's small business, we generally would have nine to 11 employees. We sold a lot of used cars. So my joke is I went from selling used cars to selling used law. And so that's what I do now. <laughs> I like that, from used cars to used law. Exactly. So, so you know, uh, as we kind of go through, you know, you, you've had a really strong career and you've continuing to have a strong career and you've spoken um, of the importance of creating these private sector economies in our tribal communities. So 
could you just kind of share uh, with our listeners why bolstering those private sectors can positively impact our communities? Absolutely. Thank you. So like I say, when I was hired, so I taught as an adjunct at Lewis and Clark Law School for six years while I was practicing law full time. And then when I was hired to be a full time professor in the summer of 99, I literally checked out a college casebook, textbook, Paul Samuelson's Economics, 14th edition. Uh, so I enjoyed that summer of 1999, really diving into economics because I planned on this being my speciality in law for tribal communities because I knew enough about Indian country that I just knew there was almost no private sector uh, economies on the vast majority of the 330 some reservations. So I've continued to focus on this. and I've now written two books on the subject and four or five law review articles. So I have continued to focus on this. The reason I look at the private sector, Corey, is that I think we, and I'm talking tribal government, I'm talking tribal communities, we have overlooked the private sector. We focus on tribally owned and tribally operated businesses. And I'm absolutely a fan of that. I have absolutely no problem with tribes being involved in business, running tribal governmental programs, running tribal gaming. That has to be done by what we would call the public sector, by the tribal government. But what I am certain is missing on the vast majority of reservations are the small little businesses owned and operated by individuals, private entrepreneurs, where you and I on the reservation can then go spend our money. So I'm certain every listener out here understands the next thing I'm going to say and what economists call leakage. Leakage is when money leaves your community sooner than is optimal. And what do most economists say? A dollar should be spent in your community five to seven times before it spins off or leaves your town, city, county, or state. Every one of us that knows anything about life on reservation knows that most dollars leave the reservation immediately. Uh, the Navajo Nation, just within the last year or so, estimated that they lose $219 million every year to purchases at the border towns off reservation. And I neglected to say this, any native person that's uh, familiar with any reservation knows what the border towns are. We know that's where the grocery stores and the movie theaters and the restaurants and the clothing stores, and we take our money and we go there. And that is an absolute disaster for the economic activity on reservation. So leakage is the fan, it's not even a fancy word, but it's what economists talk about. So let me tell you the flip side of that. And I already referred to it. Economists use the phrase, the multiplier effect. If you can capture a dollar and keep it within your town, your community, your city, your reservation, then that dollar bounces around between employee, businesses, consumers, back to employees of that business, taxes to the tribal government, purchases of gas at the local gas station, et cetera. So if we can keep those dollars in Indian country, then it creates more economic activity than the mere value of that $1 itself. Tribally owned businesses employ people and pay salaries, but if those people immediately get in their car and drive to Flagstaff, Arizona, 
or one of the other border towns gallop around the Navajo reservation, then there's no multiplier effect and that money gets spent elsewhere. So of course it's great to have jobs on a reservation. Of course it's great to have some money, but we have to capture the multiplier effect value of this money. And the only, I mean, a tribal government's not gonna run a tiny little grocery store or a dry cleaner or a six tabletop restaurant, cafe. Uh, you name it, someone's going to do your rototillering. I mean, we need that kind of businesses in Indian country so that that dollar multiplies and bounces around our reservation. So we can, I mean, I know just sitting here and just listening to your words, I'm just sitting here like, yeah, you're right. Like, yes, <laughs> um, because I, we can, I can hear the passion that you have for it and the knowledge that you have on it. And, you know, we've, we've talked about, you've, we've, had this conversation about the importance of the private sector um and then i kind of just i want to reiterate that like in your professional opinion you know why strengthening the private sector sector is more beneficial than strengthening the public sector so if there was like just one one statement or one thing that you said this is why so coming from my father's business under, you know, working 19 years myself in a privately owned family business, I think that's missing in Indian country. And that's why I focus mostly on this. Everyone else that talks about economic development in Indian country, I think is looking at tribally owned businesses, the public sector. So I think I'm one of the few people that has really been beating the drum Think of the private sector, think of the private sector. That's the fastest way we could improve the economic climate of most reservations. A private sector economy also helps the overall economic climate of a reservation in multiple ways. Number one, where do young children get their first job? And when I was a little kid in Southeast Portland, you had a paper route, or I then started washing cars for my dad. So on a reservation, Probably not too many 15 and 16 year olds can go work for the tribal government. But if there are small businesses on reservation, then there are places where our youth can be mentored, learn to deal with the public, learn to make change, learn to make hamburgers or whatever. Let me give you an example that I wrote up in my 2012 book. I was at the Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla Indian Reservation, which is in Eastern Oregon, three hours from Portland. I knew a few people out there. I was going out there to interview them as part of the research for my book. If you also know me, you know that I hate traffic jams and I don't have much patience when I'm driving, but I got to the Umatilla Indian Reservation and there was a traffic jam because the brand new McDonald's had just opened on reservation and the tribal government was resurfacing new asphalt for the tribally owned truck stop that's pretty famous out there in Eastern Oregon. And they were building their first permanent tribal headquarters. They had always just had modules, trailer type module units. And the tribe now had made enough money that they were building permanent headquarters. And so in my book, I write that this was the most fun traffic jam I have ever encountered because I don't like them, but I was stuck in a traffic jam on an Indian reservation because of economic development. And, and so I loved it. And so McDonald's, well, okay, maybe there should be a better, you know, maybe we wonder about that, but still a place where the 15 to 20 year old young people can work where someone can learn to manage other employees to get that first job. 
that's missing on most reservations. And so this is a mentorship type arrangement that the private sector can create that I don't think tribal governmental entities and healthcare clinics, et cetera, can maybe provide for 15, 16 year olds. This is why I love tribal colleges. I believe there are now 37 tribal colleges across the United States and two or three of them give the four year bachelor's degree. Studies have proven that Indian students who start in a tribal college, even if it's only a two year school, they go on and get their four year bachelor's degree at a higher rate than Indians who leave the reservation to go to a four year school in the first place. So tribal colleges do a couple of wonderful things and that's one of them. Educate Indian people better. They also interestingly provide jobs and services on reservation. Corey, I worked for the Northern Cheyenne Housing Authority for a couple of years back in the nineties and the Dole Knife Community College in Lame Deer, Montana was the one place you could eat lunch on the reservation. There's some jobs. There's a professional class of some professors and there's education right on the reservation. So it helps to stop the brain drain. Now, if there's jobs on the reservation, Corey, then even now native people don't have to leave the reservation to find a good job. And if ultimately the economic climate of a reservation improves enough that there's middle-class adequate housing, guess what? Middle-class native families can live on reservation if they choose to. Currently now the HUD housing program and the housing programs that most tribal governments run are for the poorest of the poor. And what's missing on most reservations is any kind of just regular adequate housing for the middle class. I mentioned the Umatilla tribes in Eastern Oregon. They literally have a zero unemployment rate now because they will hire any Umatilla person to work in their casino and their tribal governmental operations if they can pass a drug and alcohol and a drug and a criminal background check. That sounds to me like a zero unemployment issue. But what they're missing there is adequate housing for middle-class families to live on the reservation. So, I would argue with anyone that says that's not a plus. If you can attract middle-class families to live on your reservation, think what that does for your school system, think what that does for the other youth. So I think there is a lot of benefit from creating an economy that functions of both public sector and private sector. And to stop the brain drain is one of the biggest things and to stop the leakage of our money to the border towns. So those are maybe the two biggest reasons that I really think about the, pri the private sector and it's almost total absence from most reservations. There's the upside to creating a private sector economy and the benefit to most reservations is the potential is uncapped. It could just go up. So that's, that's why I push the private sector argument. I think it's a great argument. I mean, I, you know, as you, again, just as you were talking and, you know, we're sharing space and you're, we talk about mentorship and we talk about like, for, especially for our youth, you're right. You know, there, there are very few spaces outside or in the public sector where 14, 15 year olds can get that experience. And, you know, I just even reflecting back on, on my my experiences, you know, I was working that young 
but it was it wasn't in a tribal it wasn't in a public sector it was working you know with my my uncle who had um, a repair business so helping him move stuff around things like that you know um so th that really does tie into those community and i think that really ties into our next question as well because when we talk about community often goes hand in hand with culture so you know you you shared um about the value of returning to our cultural roots as self-sufficient and thriving entrepreneurs so how can we build those sustainable developments in our communities through entrepreneurship so what you know could you give us some strategies or best practices um, that our communities could use to help them build these sustainable economies. Yes, absolutely. I want to take a step back because I honestly think that one thing we have to do is educate ourselves that somehow owning a private business is anti-Indian. And so in my 2012 book, my longest chapter is a look back at practically a thousand years of what various tribal cultures and communities did. Did we sit around and wait for the tribal governments to give us our food and to go hunting for us? Well, just to even ask the question shows that that's ridiculous. Native peoples worked intelligently and worked hard at manufacture of various pottery, bows and arrows, housing, blankets, whatever you name it, and food on your tables we supported ourselves for thousands of years. And if you really study in depth some of the tribal communities, we built public works even. In the Phoenix area, there are hundreds of miles of canals that were built for irrigation by the Hohokam peoples and that were there in the 1500s when the Spanish showed up. So we were active, hardworking peoples we didn't wander around waiting for apples to fall out of the tree and hit us in the head. And so this is one of the, the lies, if you want to call it that, of American history, is that Indians were nomads. Well, what do you even mean by that? Do you mean we were wandering around lost waiting to, for food to fall out of a tree? That's the joke I try to make of it. Well, that's just false. My own people, the Shawnee, lived in permanent towns. Most tribes lived in a sedentary or semi-sedentary existence, primarily getting the calories they needed from farm, food they had farmed and, grow, and grew. The three great crops of corn, beans, and squash made it to upstate New York by 1000 AD. Corn has been continuously cultivated in the Mississippi Valley since 2500 BC. The oldest pottery in North America is from South Carolina, uh, indigenous cultures from South Carolina. If you want to study Cahokia, if you've never heard of the city of Cahokia, C-A-H-O-K-I-A, -A, go look that up. The city of Cahokia was larger than London was at the time. So this is something we have to disabuse ourselves of that business and being a private entrepreneur is somehow anti-Indian. It's just not. Now you asked me, so I, I went the long way, what strategies or what can we do to build a reservation economy, private sector economy from scratch? So I've given quite a bit of thought to this. And in an article I wrote in 2018, I laid out nine factors, nine points that a tribal government and 
you know, if you have a chamber of commerce on your reservation, if you have an association of private uh, businesses, what, what kind of assistance do we need so that we can build a private sector economy? I have asked economists multiple times to look at my nine points and critique them and tell me if I've missed something. And I cannot get an economist to tell me that any of these nine points are wrong or that there should be 10 points. So, so I'm just going to recount these nine very quickly. Number one, I'm talking about developing the human capital. What is human capital, folks? It's the experience the knowledge, the energy that an individual has to run their business. So how do they learn that? How did I learn to run a used car business? Because I worked with my dad from when I was 16 years old and he taught me how to wash cars, etc. So I call, I call this financial literacy. Native peoples and our reservations are so poor. There are lots of Native people that have never even had a checking account. So how would they operate and budget a privately owned business? So financial literacy is something that tribal governments should be thinking of, tribal chambers of commerce should be thinking of, and this is something that practically could start in grade school. So this is something that takes the tribal government. What's the, if you have a tribal, tribally operated school on reservation, what do you have in the curriculum? Do you have anything about financial literacy? When I went to high school in Southeast Portland, I took a math class that was called business math. And we learned practical math directed towards operating businesses. So financial literacy is something that probably the citizens of every tribe need. So my second point is to develop human capital. And what does that mean again? It's the knowledge, the experience, the ambition, the energy that you have inside your own body. What skills do you have that can be applied to operating your own business? And how can we develop that? Well, once again, tribal government has an important role here. We, we mentioned earlier that, you know, at a McDonald's, a 17-year-old kid can start learning what it means to work to work a 40 hour week, to show up on time, to work while there's clients there to deal with clients. That's human capital. But I will tell you, Corey, that working for tribal government very much improves and develops the human capital of tribal citizens. So it, the Umatilla tribe in Eastern Oregon, every one of their casino management got their start in the business world by working for the tribal government in various departments. So we have a natural breeding ground to develop our tribal human capital, excuse me, with our tribal citizens by working for tribal government, learning to manage budgets, learning to manage staff, learning to manage a department. So the third thing I say, this is still looking at individuals, create entrepreneurs. We have to create entrepreneurs. How do you do that? What is an entrepreneur? An entrepreneur is someone who takes a risk. They have an idea and they go for it. I mean, Bill Gates at one time, Jeff Bezos at one time, they had some original ideas and they took a risk and they went for it. Most entrepreneurs, I think, fail 75% of the time. 
They fail three times before they finally succeed that fourth time. So a person to take that risk has to have a safety net. And I've written in my book that tribal employment is literally a safety net for someone who then says, okay, thank you. I've worked eight years for the tribe. I have this idea. I'm going to leave you and I'm going to go try it. But if they fail, can they go back to work for the tribal government? Well, hopefully they could. But that helps to create entrepreneurs. So I'm to point number four now. We need to fund private businesses. Do you know how the average American gets the money to start their own business? Three ways. Accumulated family wealth. That's how my dad started his used car business because my mom, well, my dad went off to the military in World War II. My mom worked in the shipyard and saved up a lot of money. And when my dad came home from the army, he used that accumulated family wealth to start his used car business. Is that available to most native people? No, we know the poverty in Indian country. So that's not an, uh, an asset that's readily available for native entrepreneurs. What's the second way Americans start their own business? By a second mortgage on their house. Now, is that available to most native peoples? No. How many native peoples own their own house? And if they do and it's on reservation, then it's probably on trust land and they cannot get a bank mortgage on trust land. So they cannot borrow money from a bank. And then what's the third way the average American gets the seed money to start their business? It's by what's called a signature loan. Your credit and your job history is so good that you can walk into a bank and by signing your signature to to a contract, you can borrow $3,000 or $5,000 because they'll trust you to pay it back. Do most Indian people have that kind of a job history and credit history that they can get those funds? I think the answer to all three of these is no. So one of the biggest obstacles for tribal entrepreneurs, Indian entrepreneurs, is that initial funding. Other people say that tribal governments have to provide this funding or the federal government, or even state governments. And there are some various programs, but not enough. So I really think tribal governments, it's in your benefit to have native entrepreneurs on your reservation to start this private sector economy. Use some of the profits from that casino business or whatever timber business or whatever you have and reinvest it in your own people. And so helping to fund private businesses to me is a no brainer because that stops the leakage problem. It stops all the money going to the border towns. It helps the multiplier effect on your reservation. Okay, number five, I say there should be tribal by Indian acts and we should improve the federal by Indian act. I don't know how many of, the, of your listeners out here know what the federal by Indian act is, but it was enacted in 1910 by Congress. And it told the secretary of interior, spend federal dollars in the Indian affairs on Indian owned labor and Indian owned goods. But the act is not mandatory. The act is discretionary. And it says the Secretary of Interior may, as much as is practicable, and in the Secretary's discretion, spend federal funding on 
Indian-owned businesses and Indian-owned products. I think that tribal governments should be lobbying Congress to strengthen that act and to make the federal government spend X amount of dollars every year buying goods and services for the IHS, the Indian Health Service, for the BIA. Just think of all the money those entities spend every year, renting properties, hiring people, buying toilet paper, buying notebooks, you name it. Shouldn't those purchases be coming from tribally owned businesses? Uh, number six is the legal infrastructure. And I think in a sentence, I, do you have the kind of laws, commercial codes, do you have the kind of regulations that help businesses get licensed, lease property, and open in a couple days? So this is the legal infrastructure I'm talking about. Court systems that understand business and understand contract and judges that will fairly uh, apply the law. The Harvard Project and other people have written a lot about this. This isn't something only I have just dreamed up. Okay, my seventh point is the physical infrastructure. What do entrepreneurs need? Well, they need electricity, they need paved roads, they need sewage, they need street lights, you name it. Again, I know an Indian entrepreneur who built a Burger King, I think it was, and had to put in the electric power themselves because there was no electric transformer and no power to service uh, his new building. So that's the kind of physical infrastructure we're talking about. Again, the burden to do that is mostly tribal government. Is tribal government providing the kind of physical infrastructure that an economy needs? Number eight, so I'm nearly done, attracting human and financial capital investments. What does that mean? What does a tribal government have to do to get financial investors to invest money in reservations? I cite in my 2012 book that there's a $44 billion shortfall in investment in Indian country compared to the investment in other counties and cities in the United States. Somebody is afraid of Indian country and or there's not that many opportunities in Indian country. So again, this is tribal government. This is the legal infrastructure I just mentioned, my point number six. If investors are afraid of Indian country, if investors, non-Indian investors, if they're afraid of dealing with a tribal government or lending money to an Indian who's doing a business on reservation, then that hurts the tribal economy. But notice I also said we have to attract human capital investments. What does that mean? How do we get a native person to open their business on our reservation and not just to go to downtown Portland or downtown Phoenix? The pull to be in the big city, well, that's where all the customers are. That's where it is easy to rent an office space in two days. That's where you can get a license quickly. That's where there's electricity and paved roads and sewers and water. So Tribal governments and tribal communities may have, they do obviously have to assist entrepreneurs. They have to maybe entice entrepreneurs to come to reservation and to invest their human capital there. Okay, I'm to number nine, uh, Corey, and, and then I'm done. You asked me what strategies and develop practices I suggest, and this, this is it. Nonprofit and non-governmental organizations are a big part of the American economy. 
where are, are there these kind of entities on reservations? If there's some tribe working for Navajo or Hopi welfare, social welfare issues, shouldn't we encourage them, maybe almost insist that they open on reservation? If they want to have the tribal stamp of approval, if they want to sort of work with the tribe to provide some sort of social welfare uh, benefits, well then come work on a reservation and be located on the reservation. Because once again, the dollars that they spend, the people they hire, if we can make that money multiply in our economy, then that's to the benefit of the everyone on the reservation. Okay, so those are my nine points. You asked me what my strategies or best practices would be. And that's what I've been writing about and thinking about for about five years now and continue to work in this area. I think, you know, those nine points are really foundational and really structured to help. And our listeners can use these as ways to say, okay, what can, because I, I know, you know, I've, I've had the idea of starting, you know, my own business. You know, I, I, I had that idea. I, that was my original intent when I went to school. But having these, being able to have, you know, scholars and practitioners like yourself who are, yeah, can you hear them? Okay, one second. They just released, so there's a lot of. I hear it now. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Now we take a pause. Sorry, they just released, so I knew like if I kept going, they were going to eventually come in. So, okay. Um, where was that last part? I was at Lindsay. That you wanted to start your own business. That's what you originally. Okay. Okay. So you know, I know, I know there are listeners out there who have thought, have had this mindset of I want to start my own business. I know I have, and that's what I originally went to school for was to entrepreneurship. But being able to have these, you know, these nine points, these nine strategies can really benefit and help those who might not know where to start and can really benefit you know our our listeners who are sharing space with us virtually um to say hey you know how do we how do we do this how do we actually and so it gives it gives them that so um you know i i appreciated it and i i think our listeners will too and you know i really appreciate what you talked about at the beginning as well when we talked about those those cultural ties you know when you talk about um our historic kind of economic development. Because, you know, you talked about Cahokia and Cahokia having, you know, one of the largest trading systems that we saw in North America at this way long before uh, Columbus got lost, you know? And so I, yeah, I never say discover, I say Columbus got lost and we found him, <laughs> but, you know, um, we we have we we have it in our communities we've had it in our communities and we're going to continue to have it in our communities because you know as you know american indian graduate center we have developed programs that are specifically connected to empowering native scholars who are pursuing these types of careers right we we we've had these conversations before they're pursuing these careers in business finance accounting um and you know, as 
we talked about the historical part. We talked about, you know, what's going on now. You know, now as we talk about these, um, these scholars who are coming up, what advice would you be able to share with those scholars and these young professionals that might be listening um, as they begin to navigate this professional journey? Well, thank you for asking me that question because I've never really focused on this. So I spent quite a bit of time this morning, time this morning thinking about you know, what advice I would give to some younger person or something. But uh, first off, I mean, you need a wide experience. That's why it's so important that there be jobs on the reservation, that there be mentors that a person can work with. So you need a men you need me seek out mentors in both the business world. And then when you're going through university or tribal college, seek out mentors there. Don't go for the easiest professors, go for the toughest. Go to the best schools you can go to and try to work for or be a research assistant for the toughest professors and, and learn and think and concentrate and plan. I mean, when I was going to law school, my friends asked me, well, what's it like? What's happening? And I said, well, I'm moving fast. I just don't know where I'm going. And so even in the law school and the experiences I was having and the opportunities I was getting, it, you don't necessarily know what the absolute end result will be. So you do your best and you work hard all along that way and you keep moving and doors will open for you. So what's your goals? What does a person want? Uh, if you want to live on reservation, how's that going to happen? There better be a job. There better be a school you want to send your kids to. There better be health care. So all these things we've been talking about, raising the quality of life on reservations raises all boats too. And I just want to say something I heard the other day. You've got to learn to control social media and not let social media control you. Too many of us have fooled ourselves that we can multitask. And I heard a very interesting program on public radio, I think a week or two ago, that it is impossible to multitask. Email, Facebook, all this stuff is just a distraction that keeps you from concentrating deeply. I know our law students that I teach, even in the classroom, probably have a couple of screens open and are getting dings and are hearing things. It is impossible for the human mind to concentrate when you're like that. So I think I literally just made up that phrase, control social media, do not let it control you. I didn't hear that from someone else. But when I'm talking about for younger scholars, younger people making their way through school, you've got to have a singular focus on what you're studying, what your career is, what your goals are, what you want to be. And we can't let other things distract us from that. So I guess it's just hard work, concentrated, long-term hard work. And like I said, move fast, but where are you gonna end up? You never, <laughs> you don't know. The doors of opportunity open to you folks. And that's what we don't know. You have to be prepared when those doors open. I think that's solid advice right there. You have to be prepared. We have to be prepared for when those doors open because we never know when opportunity knocks, right? Mm -hmm. We never, we never, we we'll never know when that person who wants to invest in you is going to come up to you and introduce yourself. So I think that's solid advice. So Bob, I just want to just say thank you. Thank you so much 
for sharing your knowledge, your expertise with us and with our listeners. Um, you know, with it has been such a pleasure, such an honor to be able to share you know this virtual space. Um, and we just again thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. I'm delighted to talk about this subject. I've been devoted to it for twenty some years now, so I'm delighted to get the message out. And to all of our listeners that are listening, you know, we we hope you've learned just as much as we have through this. I know I've learned things through today's conversations, but we want to thank you all for continuing on this journey with us. And we can't wait to be back here with you next week. So until then, this is your host, Dr. Corey Self. What else?